that, let's uh, go ahead and uh, turn to 1 Peter. This morning, 1 Peter, we're in a series that we have entitled uh, Strangers in a Strange Land. And uh, we find ourselves in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have uh, pew Bibles that are there for you uh, to go ahead and turn to. And if you have difficulty finding the book of 1 Peter, where we'll be at, uh, just go to the end of the Bible. The book of Revelation, of course, is the last book of the Bible. Go through, as you're heading back to the left, the book of Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, 2 Peter, and then the book of 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And we've been in this series, and we started it just about a month ago, finding ourselves focusing in on the theme of salvation and how God has saved us from our sin and cleansed us of unrighteousness and all of our unrighteousness. And as a result of that, he has brought us into a living hope that amidst all of the suffering, all of the trials that we may face in this world, that we can know without a shadow of a doubt that God has a plan for us. And today we're going to deal with how that plan has taken root in human history. And we're going to be exploring that. And uh, I just will bring it up. It's, this was a hard message to prepare for. There's a lot of things going on within this text, and I want to be faithful to it, but I also want to be able to apply God's Word to our lives, and I hope what I've prepared uh, will be of great benefit to you. Let's go ahead and stand, and let's look to the Scripture this morning, and then we'll get into our text. It says this, uh, Peter tells us, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring uh, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we are so thankful once again in 1 Peter to be brought face to face with the realization of our salvation. Oh, Father, it is so good to know that we are no longer far from you, that because of your grace and your mercy, we can have fellowship with your son, Jesus Christ. We can be filled by your spirit, and we can be led and guided to a life of holiness and righteousness. Oh, God, we need that. We are so quick to wander away from you. Lord, I am so prone to that wandering, and I need your spirit to lead and to guide me each day. Lord, I pray if there's anyone today who has never trusted you as their Savior, who maybe has never heard the gospel that you have come, that you might bring life to a world of despair, that there might be one today that would bow the knee to Jesus and make you the Lord and Savior of their life. Father, I pray they wouldn't leave this place without seeking out someone to answer the question of how do I receive eternal life. Father, we're thankful. We're thankful for how you have moved in human history to bring this gospel to us. And Lord, we're thankful for what you're going to teach us this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I've noticed any time you get a mix of people together from varying generations, a little contest will inevitably break out. And the contest is between uh, young and old alike. And usually it begins with an older generation telling a younger generation, you've got it so good. You've got it so easy. And no doubt what will be brought up is the many, many miles through the snow you trekked as an older generation to school, how far you worked your fingers to the bone, how little you got away with because of stern moms and dads, and how this generation finds itself to be lazy and finds itself not to be uh, living up to its potential. We have a way of looking at people outside of our own generation and saying that they've got it easier. And as a father of three boys, I can totally tell you how easy it is for them. The moment we sit into the car, the first thing is, will you turn on our show? How I would have longed on those long journeys in the family station wagon 
to be able to say, can you just turn on a show? We used to have to play games looking at license plates. How pathetic is that? And yet my kids seem to have it so good. At any point in time, because of technology, each of my kids can be watching one of five different things, whether on a computer or an iPad or on a television. When I was younger, we had five channels to choose from. And half of them were in Spanish. And so we find ourselves uh, always looking at the other generation and saying how good we've got, how good they've got it, and how difficult it was for us. And there may be some real truth to that. But in our text today, we're going to hear the opposite. What the scripture is going to tell us is a generation of old is going to tell us today exactly what has been articulated. And the truth of it is we can't look at any other generation and say they've got it better because the scripture tells us today that you, you and I today in this time of grace and mercy, being able to look back and see the great glories of Jesus Christ, to be able to have in our hands God's truth, his revealed word to us, We've got it oh so good. We've got it because we can look back and see the sacrifice that many people laid before uh, us, their lives for the sake of us being able to see this great glory. And while we look at this text this morning, we will see over and over again, not only that we have it so good, but we will be reminded as to the greatness of our salvation. Now, many of us will say right away, well, that may be true, Tim. Yes, I've got a Bible in my hand, and yes, I live in a time where I can look back and know the whole story, but it sure would have been great to be able to walk and talk with Jesus. And I think that that is true. It would have been great to be one of the Israelites who, who walked on dry land as the sea was parted. That would have been pretty neat to experience. But what it seems to articulate to us is that the angels, the apostles, and even the prophets look at us today and say, wow, you've got it so good. And I hope you recognize that this morning as we look at this text before us because there are three things that I want us to look at that remind us of how good we've really got it. And it begins with an understanding. You see, we have to understand how good we've got it so that we can then experience the great joy that comes in knowing what has been laid before us. And the first thing I want you to notice is as Christians, we are able to understand the gospel message that brings salvation. We are able to understand the message, that gospel message that brings salvation. Now last week, we looked in our text and we saw that we have been born again. We have been born again into a living hope. And as a result of that, now Peter focuses his uh, attention on this salvation that brings hope. Notice in our text, he uses the phrase concerning this salvation. Talk about something that we take for granted, something that uh, we say is so important and vital to our life as a Christian, the salvation of our soul, and yet I am struck as how little we as Christians know about the framework and the mechanics, if you will, of the salvation that we have. If you were to look at the average Christian, even here this morning, you would come to look at your salvation as I view my insurance. I pay money to have insurance, insurance for my car, insurance for my house, and I am putting a lot of faith and hope that if today my house was to burn down, that my insurance is going to cover it. Now, I gotta be honest with you. I've never really looked at any of the paperwork that they've sent. And I don't know if that's true of you, but I've never spent any time, I'm just putting a whole lot of faith and trust that when they see Tim and Amanda without a house, and pathetic as we would look at that moment, they would say, don't worry about it, we'll take care of it. Now, I've paid the bills, I've done what I, at minimum, what I'm supposed to do to have insurance, but I really don't know what that covers. I'm not really sure exactly, and you may say, well, man, we've got a dummy as a pastor, but I just put a whole lot of faith that my insurance agent, being a good businessman that he is, would make sure that I'm covered. Can I tell you, while that may seem a bit ignorant, how much more ignorant is it for us to put our faith and trust in our eternal destiny and not have any idea 
other than, gee whiz, I hope on that day of judgment I'm able to walk in. I'll look real pathetic before God, and he'll say, well, of course, you can come in. And we need to be very careful as Christians that we recognize that salvation isn't just something that we get insurance out of hell for, but something far more than that. I would be remiss not to stop in this text and ask the question, what should we know concerning this salvation? What is it that Peter would articulate to us? And there's a couple things that I want to pull from this. Number one, our salvation involves a plan. It involves a plan. Anytime we hear the the phrase, a plan of salvation, many of us who have been believers for a long time think of things like Romans Road or the four spiritual laws or, or some creative way to articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's far deeper than that because the plan of salvation is God's process of redeeming people. And we have, because maybe just a little bit of laziness, we have come to make that a very small thing. That the plan of salvation is that I get on my knees, I say I'm sorry for my sin, and Jesus saves me. But I'm going to tell you something, just as it is probably in the insurance world, there's a whole lot more to that. There's a whole lot more to our eternal salvation. Now, we looked in verse 1 and 2, and just move back a little bit, that we remember that uh, this salvation was God choosing us before the foundations of the earth. It's the Spirit who is at work to change us, to make us more like the Son of, uh, of, of God, the Father, Jesus Christ. And then it is the Son who is not only cleansing us one time, but is in an ongoing ministry of cleansing that is taking place. I want you to pull out uh, of your bulletins this morning an insert. And I wish it would have printed a little better, and maybe we'll be able to get it to print a little better. But I'm going to help you uh, by putting it up on the screen. And what you have before you is what we call the ordo salutis. And I know that sounds weird, but really what it means is the order of salvation is what that is, just the Latin phrase for it. And within it, you can see, of course, many of the building blocks of our salvation. And I want to just walk through this very quickly, and you can spend some time investigating it later. But our salvation begins in what we call election. Before creation, because of God's good pleasure, God chooses people to be saved. And we can wrestle with that and try to understand that, but God clearly articulates that in the Scriptures. Then we have the calling. God summons people to himself through the human proclamation of the gospel so that people may respond in saving faith. And so what you're hearing today is the calling. I'm calling out to all people, and I'm calling for you to bow the knee to Jesus, to give your life to him and make him Lord and Savior of your life. I do that every Sunday, okay? That's the calling, all right? Thirdly, we have uh, the ministry of regeneration. We talked about this, that this is the phrase born again. Regeneration is God secretly and sovereignly uh, imparting spiritual life to those who have been called. Then we have conversion, and many of us know what this is because it's our willing response to the gospel call. Repenting of sin and placing faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. We in American Christianity call this inviting or asking Jesus Christ into our lives. That is the conversion experience. Then there's justification. We've heard that if you've been in church for any period of time. And justification is the instantaneous legal act of God in which he declares that our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness is placed on us. And so what happens is we go from being an enemy of God, a sinner, to being one who has the righteousness of Christ placed onto our lives. So when God sees us, no longer does he see us in our sin, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is in our lives forever. You can't lose that justification because once it is placed on you, God says is a legal binding agreement by God himself that you will always be justified. Then there's the issue what we call adoption. It's going to get a little harder to read up here. It's an act of God in which he makes us members of his family. What God does is he takes enemies. We were all enemies of God in our sin and in our trespasses. And God doesn't just say, well, 
I'll fix it so that at minimum we can at least wave to each other when we see one another. What God does is he welcomes us into his family. Romans 8 tells us that we can cry out to him, not as just God or, or big guy in charge, but we can cry out to him and say, Dad, I'm hurting. Dad, I need you. The God of the universe is our Father, and we can interact and relate with him. Go ahead and uh, flip uh, the screen there. Then we have, of course, many of you know, the idea of sanctification. It's a progressive, meaning it's going to be up and down. That's why that arrow points that way. It's a lifelong work of God and man that frees us from sin and makes us more like Christ. That is part of the preaching ministry here. What I do is not only do I call people to salvation on a Sunday morning, but we're working on the sanctification of every believer. And so I'm preaching and teaching you truths so that you can say, well, how am I supposed to live like Christ? How am I to be living a holy and upright life? The process of sanctification is Christians bowing the knee to what is recorded in Scripture and following it. We talked about a couple weeks ago the issue of perseverance. All those who are justified will be kept by God's power and persevere as Christians to the end of their lives. The idea there is once you're saved, you don't have to sit there and worry of whether or not God's covering your sins. Just as we were told, Jesus will continue to sprinkle his blood onto our lives, cleansing us of all unrighteousness. And then one we don't think about very often is the issue of glorification. This is the great inheritance that Peter's talking about in chapter 1. This is the living hope that just as Christ died and was buried and rose again, we too will live, we will die, we will be buried, and one day at a time of God's own choosing, he will raise us up from the dead and we will hand off the perishable, the mortal, if you will, bodies and we will be given immortal imperishable bodies and that is the great deposit the great inheritance that God has for us now some of these things just so you're aware I've, I've built this on a logical plane if you will and I want you to notice you can see in your outlines there it refers to the sequence of conceptual steps involved in the salvation of the Christian there at the top the sequence is to be logical instead of per se chronological some steps occur uh, sequentially while others occur instantaneously and what that means is um, when you have your conversion experience there isn't this time that sits out here and God says well we'll get back to you about your justification okay when you bow the knee to Jesus Christ and you give your life to him God says in that moment not a nanosecond is separated from that you are brought into the family of God your sins are forgiven and you are now in the process of sanctification all of that to tell you there's a whole lot of stuff going on in our salvation, amen? It isn't simply just this willful decision that we make and God sits there and says, all right, well then we're all done. God says this salvation began before the foundations of the earth and it will end on the great and glorious day of the resurrection. And so we need to recognize that, that there's a plan that this salvation is bringing forth. Now let's get back into the text. The text tells us not only is it a plan, but we also see that it's personal in nature. All that you just saw in your outlines isn't just for any kind of group of people. God didn't just say, well, I don't know who you are and I don't know what you're all about, but I'm just going to go ahead and save you and, and uh, you really aren't all that important to know who you are because there's so many of you. Uh, just go over into group B, okay? Just go over there. If you want to be one of my children, head over there, okay? That's not what happens at all. Notice in the text what happens concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be help me out yours this isn't just anybody's this is yours notice he continues to go they inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you the whole reason the prophets were doing their work is so that you, you as an individual sitting here at Village Bible Church today, might have the opportunity to bow the knee to Jesus and follow him as your Lord and Savior. It's about you. Now notice it goes on. In the things that have now been announced to you. 
It isn't that God just said, all right, anybody and any, everybody and anybody who wants to come, just, just go ahead and come. Again, I don't need to know names or numbers. Just, just work your way over here. No, God, it tells us, calls us by name. He comes and he says, Tim, you're a sinner. You're in need of the gospel, and I'm calling you to be a part of my family. Will you come? That's a glorious thought, that the God of the universe wants to have a relationship with you. The God who is holding everything in order, the God who has created uh, the universe and everything that we see here on earth, the God who has been and always has been and always will be there, who does not fit in time, that God wants to have a relationship with puny little you and me. Not only your relationship, but he wants to bring you into his family. This is the gospel. This is the salvation that Peter is articulating. And Peter would know this and recognize it because after Peter falls, remember after he denies Jesus three times before the crucifixion, Peter must have really wondered if he had any standing before God. And it is Jesus who comes and meets Peter exactly where he's at. And by name, he calls Peter and says, I want you to follow me again. I want you to live your life under my submission and my authority. Now notice that it's personal in nature, but it's also about a person. It's all about a person. As Christians, we don't just hold to a, a particular motto or a particular way of life. It isn't that we follow just some sacred writings, okay? It isn't that we just all agree that there's a certain uh, set of knowledge that we need to attain. The whole idea of Christianity is found in 1 Peter chapter, uh, let's see here, chapter 11. It says, 1 Peter 1, 11 says, They inquired uh, regarding the person and time the Spirit was indicating to them when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, and his subsequent glories. All of Christianity, every bit of Christianity, let me tell you something, Christianity is not Christianity without Christ. Jesus Christ is our foundation. Jesus Christ is our all in all. Jesus Christ is where all our hope is and everything. If there's no Jesus, then what we're reading is just some historical literature. And it may have some nice thoughts and some pithy ideas uh, of how we ought to live our lives, but without Jesus, this thing will do us no good. And it is Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, Jesus Christ who came and lived a sinless life to be our sacrifice. This Jesus who was raised from the dead is the reason why we are Christians. We can't be followers of this way of life without Jesus. It involves a person. Notice the final thing is it is absolutely positive. It is a positive thing. Notice later on in the text, it tells us, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, verse 12 says, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the, help me out, good news, the gospel. The Greek word there for gospel or good news, according to your translation, is the Greek word euangelion. Euangelion is a word of good tidings. It's kind of what the angels do when they speak out to the shepherds and they say good tidings of great joy. We've got good news for you. This good news was used, this word euangelion spoke of a leader who would send his heralds out to tell everyone the battle is won. We've won the war. So go tell all of our citizens that the war is over and we can celebrate because we have good news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ takes sinners who are on their way to hell and he makes them be born again. He gives them a living hope and he brings them into eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. And so that's good news. Because we who were once dead are now alive. We who were once far off from God now are a part of the family of God. We who had no hope and no future now have a living hope because of Jesus Christ who has been resurrected from the dead. This is the salvation that Peter is wanting us to be concerned about. Peter wants to make us aware of. Now this isn't something that just came out of nowhere. 
This isn't something that God uh, planned. It wasn't as if God in redemption history, uh, God under, if you will, and just using some football terms here, he didn't get under center and then call an audible. The redemption story has been something that God has had in his mind since before he created the world, the scripture tells us. And it's something that he's been playing out ever since. And how he wrote it up on paper is exactly how it's being played out today. And so we need to see that because there's a great mystery, point number two, a great mystery that surrounded its coming. This salvation was mysterious for a great long while. There was a great mystery behind it. Now Peter wants to prove to his readers and to us today how great we really do have it. And that not everybody, not every human being up to that point had what we have. And he wants to declare to us how great our salvation is because throughout human history, it has been progressively been be, being revealed uh, to us. And it was seen, of course, totally revealed at the moment that Christ was born in Bethlehem. So let's notice what the purpose of this is to do. Notice that all of this that Peter is articulating is to have you and I appreciate what you and I have in Jesus Christ. To be reminded of that. We do that as parents, don't we? We remind them of the good that they have. Because it is so easy for our children, and for us for that matter, to become ungrateful for what God has done for us. To be ungrateful for the gifts that God has given us. To be ungrateful, and why would we be ungrateful? Why would the people of 1 Peter have been ungrateful? Because they were going through sufferings of many kinds. And they begin to take their eye off the ball, and they begin to look at their trials and tribulations, and they forget that God is the God who loved them, who cares for them, and who sent his son Jesus to die for them. And so we need to be reminded of this. Now notice this message of salvation is great because it was prophesied by the prophets. Notice verse 11 again. Let's get into this a little more. It tells us that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. They inquired as to the person and the time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What Peter is painting is a far-reaching historical picture. He's telling us that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, was active in the life of the prophets during the time of the Old Testament. And that he was preparing them with the message, he was revealing little by little the message that again would be fully revealed when Christ was born in Bethlehem. But where do we get this notion in the Old Testament of a Savior. Where do we get this idea that we need a Savior? I want you to put your finger in 1 Peter, and I want you to go to the very beginning of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. You say, where did salvation begin? Where did it get start getting talked about? We've got to go back to the garden. Genesis chapter 2. So you're in the back of the Bible. Go all the way to the front. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. So if you're in the table of contents, move to your right a couple pages you'll find yourself in Genesis 3. And what has transpired here is God has created the world. He's created everything in it. He has put man in the garden. Of course, then he sees man as lonely, and so he creates woman. And so you've got man and woman, Adam and Eve. They're walking and hanging out in the garden. God has one rule. Hey, don't eat or touch or, or, um, or I'm sorry, don't eat from the fruit uh, of the uh, tree of good and evil. And, uh, of course, the devil comes. He tempts Eve to eat it. She then hands it to her husband. He eats it, and everything falls apart. Man no longer has a right standing with God. Man no longer has a relationship with God because now it's marred by sin. So God comes looking, and God finds Adam and Eve, and he starts bringing the pain, okay? And he comes in, and in Genesis chapter 3, we see starting in verse 14 that he starts addressing each one of them. He starts with the serpent, then he deals with the woman, and then he deals with the man. And he gives them what we call the consequences of sin. And I want you to hear in verse 14 what transpires. The Lord God said to the serpent, this is the devil, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And notice what he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now notice what he says. He shall bruise your head, 
I'm sorry. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that scripture there, verse 15, tells us that there's a battle that's going on. There's a war between the offspring of the woman and the devil. And this battle that's going to go, there's a prophecy there that at some point in human history, the offspring of the woman, okay, a human being is going to come, and he's going to bring a death blow to the devil and to sin. And so from that point, as Moses writes that down, as God helps him record uh, human history at that point, we have a prophecy, a prophecy that there is someone who's going to come and rescue man from this issue of sin. We know that this prophecy, as it plays itself out, is going to be of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to turn, um, you know, just write these passages down. We're not going to have time to go through all of them. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. We learn a little bit more about this, and I'm not going to be able to address all of them, but we'll address some of these prophecies. Isaiah 9, remember, the Old Testament is written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah's writing about a guy who is going to come and he's going to be a king. He's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to bring peace. Here's the thing. Isaiah doesn't have a clue of who this person is. He's writing this, and he recognizes what he's writing is something that God has declared to him, and he knows there's good times coming, but it's not in the here and now of, of Isaiah's day. He's looking forward. I want you to also understand that Micah, the small book of Micah, verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 5, Micah chapter 5. I've got to get my old Awana days in here to remember where these books of the Bible are at. Micah chapter 5 reminds us that uh, this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Notice what the text says, Micah 5, verses 2 through 5. But you, Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until that time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. All of that would continue to go on. That Jesus was going to come, he was going to be born, which he was born in the city of David, Bethlehem. And we find out that Psalm 22 tells us that at some point in time, this man who has come to be the ruler of his people, to be God's representative, will undergo great, great suffering. Psalm 22 prophesies to the great suffering that will take place. Take some time this week and read Psalm 22, verses 14 through 18. But we see that though he's going to be suffered, though God, his father, was going to forsake him hundreds of years before it happened that he would be raised up in subsequent glory. Psalm 22, 27 through 31 tells us that we will see his glory. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, 3 through 11, tells us that he is going to be the suffering servant. And we see that he is going to be beaten and he is going to be hung and crucified long before crucifixion was ever created. Isaiah prophesies to a T what is going to take place. And in verses, I'm sorry, in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, we see the subsequent glory that Christ would endure suffering. He would be hung on a cross, but he would be raised. He would be glorified. Now, I could go on and on, but for the sake of time, Moses, David, and Isaiah all tell us that there was one coming, but none of them knew who he was. Now you say, well, how were they able to do that? We, uh, a couple years ago, my doctor said that I had too much stress in my life, and he said I had to relieve stress, and, uh, and so he told me I needed to start doing puzzles, that puzzles would help relieve stress. 
And so I started working on a puzzle per the doctor's orders, and we put it on our dining room table. And I was always amazed that anytime anybody ever came over, they all wanted to help with the puzzle. And so you would always inevitably, someone would come over, and they would take the puzzle pieces. And here's the thing. I never had the box out for them to see the whole picture. All they could do is find the puzzle piece that fit the place that they were wanting to complete. They never saw the full picture, but little by little, with many help, uh, help of many friends, we completed the picture. What the prophets were doing was little by little adding their puzzle piece to the picture. That puzzle piece does not come together, brothers and sisters, until Easter Sunday. It doesn't come together until we see all of what they've had and we have it so good that we can look back and see all of how Isaiah put his puzzle piece in, David did, Moses did, all of those minor prophets that we can't pronounce their name, how they little by little put in the puzzle pieces and now we can go to the dining room table of redemption and see how it all plays out. This is why, Christians, we've got it so good. Now notice, it wasn't that we just can look at it, but notice it was also then preached by the apostles. And so we have then what it says in the scripture back in 1 Peter. 1 Peter reminds us that it's not just that we have to look at what the prophets did, but then God sent the apostles to proclaim that good news to us. What we are reading is from an apostle. Peter, it says at the beginning of this letter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so not only do we have to go and try to figure out what the prophets meant, but the apostles came and they proclaimed to us the good news. They announced it to us. And they helped us put, if you will, that puzzle piece together. And so we see that. We see it all throughout the book of Acts where the apostles would use the Old Testament writings. Peter did this on the day of Pentecost when he spoke of the prophets Joel and David. He says these things are what the prophets were talking about. We look in Acts 7, where Stephen is preaching to a crowd, and over and over again, he articulates, this is what the prophets foretold. We know that the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 is reading the book of Isaiah, and he says, this doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand this. And we are told that Philip then goes, and he articulates the truth of the prophet Isaiah to this man, and this man becomes a Christian and is subsequently baptized. We even see it, write this passage down, Luke 24, 25 through 27, when two buddies are on their way home on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus, from the prophets, articulates all of who he was. We have it so good because it's not that we have to try to figure it out on our own, but God has sent apostles to come into our lives. We have the recorded word before us, and their words teach us what the message of salvation is all about. Now let's notice one more final thing, and that is that this uh, mystery is being pursued by the angels. Verse 12. It tells us that this salvation, which was prophesied about and preached about, is also being pondered by the angels. Now Peter seems to drop this phrase in to the text, and what are we to make of it? And notice the text says, and the angels long to look into these things. Now, what are they looking into? We don't hear, we don't give an, get an answer from Peter, but I think the answer is found in verse 10. I think what the angels are looking into is this salvation that was prophesied about of the grace that was to be yours, the grace that was to be yours. I think what the angels are looking into is grace. Now, you say, well, why would they look into grace? Here's the reason why. You learned in Sunday school that before the creation had taken place, sometime in eternity past, that there was a rebellion in heaven. Lucifer, who would become the devil, rebelled against God because he wanted God's place of prominence. He was so good, he was so beautiful, he was so amazing that a third of the angels said, we think that Lucifer could take God. God says, right when that moment takes place, God says, you're out of here, get lost, you're forever, if you will, grounded in a place called hell. And you will await the judgment until that day. And now, angels understood that. They understood you mess with God, God deals with you, okay? They understood God's righteousness. They understood God's holiness. They understood God's wrath and his judgment. But then God creates again, and he creates a world. 
And this world is far different than the world that the angels lived in. And he creates a man and a woman. They're very different than angels. And God starts relating with this man and woman, Adam and Eve. He walks with them. He talks with them. He engages with them on an ongoing basis. And what happens? Lo and behold, just like the angels, Adam and Eve rebel against God. And the angels say, oh, here we go. Here comes the grounding. Here comes the beatings, okay? The angels, I wonder if they're like some of my children when, when it's time for uh, some discipline to be done. Uh, one is in the room getting disciplined, and the other two are, oh, what's going on, little ambulance chasers? Okay? And I wonder if that's what the angels are doing. Hey, what is God going to do? No doubt he's going to all lay them to waste. He's going to throw them to hell. That's what he did before. And all of a sudden, do you notice what happens? God says, I'm going to cover it. The angels must have been just, what? What in the world's going on? God, we, we've always known you to be a God of, of wrath and judgment. That's what you did with our compatriots who now are in hell. Now you're giving a second chance. And they watch this, and, and every time men would, would blow it. Think about Genesis chapter 6, that every inclination of man's heart was to do evil. Okay, now they've really blown it. Maybe God gave them one chance, and so he's going to wipe them all out. But the scripture says grace came, and God, and Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And God says, I'm going to give you another chance. And then we go on sinning, and we keep sinning, and, and we live for ourselves, and God gives uh, a nation of his own. He says, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And what do they do? They continue to disobey. They continue to dishonor him. And God keeps loving them and loving them, but they've still got this sin issue. And what I think blew the angels away was the moment that God the Son got off his throne and he said, I'm going to go be one of them. And I think that that's what electrified the angels on Christmas morning. I think that's what blew them away. My goodness, this God is showing peace and mercy and love to these sinners. Brothers and sisters, the angels are in awe of you and I because we're people of grace because God, and they don't get it, God loves us in spite of our sin. And they're trying to figure out the mind of God. They're trying to understand what is it about these people who were made a little lower than the angels for God to be so gracious with them. And so you know what God tells angels to do? The book of Hebrews says that the angel's job is now to be ministering servants to people of grace. And so their job is to Look out for us, to serve us. And they are amazed as to how good you and I have got it. We've got it so good. And so that brings me to the third point. I need to land this plane. But it is that there's a godly model to strive for. There's a godly model to strive for. We have been shared with us this salvation. And now we need to do something with it. And there's some application. The first application that I want you to see in the text as people who have uh, partaken in this salvation is you and I need to be involved in studying of Scripture. We need to be involved in the studying of Scripture. Notice what verse 10 says. The prophets searched and inquired as to this salvation. If they inquired about something they didn't receive in its fullness until long after they were gone, how much more should you and I be inquiring and searching the, uh, the scriptures of the salvation that we enjoy? This idea of searching is the word um, exiteo. The word, Greek word exiteo there means to make for a careful search. It means that you will exhaust yourself in the search of something, that you will not stand idly by until that which you are searching for is found. Does that describe the searching of Scripture that you and I have today? That we will exhaust ourselves to understand what this book has to say about our lives, about our salvation. Now he adds the phrase to inquire. This word literally, so he says that we, the prophets, searched for, they exhausted themselves, and they inquired literally the only use of this word is a secular word in the Greek language and it literally meant a dog who is sniffing out a treasure. And so what he is telling us to do 
is to do what the prophets did. And that is exhaust ourselves. And if you've ever seen a dog see, searching out a treasure, they will not stop until they find that bone. They will not stop until they find what they're looking for. Brothers and sisters, the prophets are a great example for us to be people of the word. We need to be people of the word. Number two, this model involves serving others selflessly. You say, Tim, where do you get that? Verse 12 says that the prophets were not serving themselves, but you. The picture here is that the prophets had spread a table so that others may feast on the spiritual food found in their prophecies. They knew what these prophecies spoke of, that there was a future Savior who was coming. He was going to come and he was going to take care of them, but they knew little about who it was going to be. And so who are they writing for? Their writing wasn't for themselves, but for you and I. And that begs the question this morning for us, how are we serving those who are going to come after us? How are we serving and what kind of legacy are we leaving to those who will come after us? Brothers and sisters, I am standing here as a child of God because of the testimony not only of a godly mom and dad, but a godly grandmother and grandfather and a godly great-grandmother and great-grandfather. And that legacy of faithfulness has been seen that I can go back in generations and say, it's because of the model that you showed me that I am standing here today. Now you say, but Tim, I don't have that model. I don't have that kind of legacy. Well, begin one today. Fathers, lead your children. Moms, lead your kids and teach them the truths of Scripture. Get involved in teaching Sunday school. Get involved in Awana. Get involved in being a self. What is a child going to do back for you? We can't do anything for the prophets except live out the legacy that they laid before us. Do something as a Christian that will be left for the years to come. Number three, share good news. Share the good news. Verse 12, it was announced to us the good news. Brothers and sisters, there's been a lot of talking in our, in our presidential campaign that just finished up about the makers and the takers. Numbers have been thrown out, the 47% and all of that. And, and I don't want to get into the politics, but let me tell you something. Let me tell you something very clear. It is never endorsed by God for you to simply take God's good news of salvation and keep it for yourself. It is never endorsed in Scripture that we should be saved and then say, you know what, I'm so glad I'm saved, but I'm not going to tell anybody else about it. The prophets foretold and the apostles announced. Brothers and sisters, if they could do that, well, why can't we? Now you say, well, I can't do that, Tim. Well, they couldn't either. And that's why the Spirit of God, it says in there, enabled them to do it. And so your prayer needs to be, tomorrow, Lord, I'm going to work. Tomorrow, Lord, I'm going to school. Tomorrow, Lord, uh, or this week, I'm going to sit before unsafe family members around the Thanksgiving table. Lord, speak through me. Allow me to proclaim the greatness of the salvation that I have. Number four, stand in awe of God's plan. In verse 12, we tell, it's told to us that the angels look into these things. The word look is the Greek word uh, parakupto. The word parakupto means a willingness to exert oneself or to inconvenience oneself to obtain a better perspective. The idea here is that what the angels were doing was leaning over the railing of heaven, straining their neck to see what God was doing in our lives. Do you inconvenience yourself to get a glimpse of what God is doing in the world around us? Do we strain and look and turn our heads just trying to get a glimpse of what God is doing? God is up to great things. And what we begin to do is when we forget that God is up to great things, then we begin to think that the world is, is falling apart. Brothers and sisters, the world is in God's hands. And if we would just start to stretch a little bit and look at what God is doing, then the trials that we're facing will become very, very small. It says that they long to look into these things. It gives us the picture of a continual desire. The only entertainment the angels want is to watch and see what God is doing. And brothers and sisters, we would rather have tickets on the 50-yard line 
We would rather have front row seats at a Broadway show, and we will pay big money for that. But the last thing we will do is stretch and seek to see the perspective of what God is doing in the world around us. Stand in awe of what God is up to. And finally, this involves suffering well in light of the glory to come. I'd be remiss not to remind you of this truth today. Verse 11 says that they inquired as to the person and time the Spirit of Christ was indicating when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. Brothers and sisters, we follow a man named Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was called by the prophets a man of sorrow. What makes us think that our life won't be sorrowful as well? What makes us think that we won't have trouble? The Bible says that in this world we will have trouble. They persecuted me, Jesus says, they're going to persecute you. It's not going to be easy. But here's the great reminder. Though in this world, as Jesus did, we will suffer, and some of us will suffer greatly for the cause of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me remind you that Jesus Christ did not remain the suffering servant, but he is the living and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. And on a day of God's choosing, our suffering here on earth will be done, and we will, as Peter says, be given the great inheritance, the outcome of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, I know I've spoken for a long time, and that's good. And let me tell you why that's good, because we need to be reminded over and over again how good we really got it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, I pray that we would recognize in this week of Thanksgiving how good you've been to us, how much you have loved us, how much you've cared for us, how much you are concerned about us even today, how you are seeking to protect us and to lead us and to guide us. Lord, we have got it so good. We've got your word before us. We can know what your ways are. They're no longer a mystery, but Lord, they are revealed to us. Now, Lord, give us the strength to walk in them. Lord, let us turn away from sin. Let us turn away from unrighteous thinking and let us follow you so that we may live holy lives. Father, I pray for those who are here in this place this morning who have heard of this salvation in a new and real way this morning that they themselves would come. Not out of coercion, but Lord, by your spirit they would come they might receive this eternal life in Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, we're leaving this place. We're going to go to uh, an event-filled day. And, Lord, I pray that wherever we go, whoever we run into, that we would be able to articulate and show by the love and the mercy we have for others the love and mercy that you've shown us. Lord, guide us this week, this week of Thanksgiving, that we may live lives of gratitude for all that you Empower us by your spirit now, Lord, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.